I can't tell you how blessed I was by that children's choir. That was so special. Yeah, and I, I was, I'm also very interested. I, the little guy, the littlest guy in the front center, name is Daniel. And I'm telling you, Carrie is such a, a contagious leader that that little guy had his eyes on her and he was mirroring her motions as he sang. And I thought, if she gets sick, he will take over. So, what a wonderful, what a blessing to have so many children. Oh, it is refreshing. We've been places where there weren't any. To see this, you, you've got more than you can handle almost. They're so, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let me have a prayer, one more prayer as we continue. Lord Jesus, thank you for this Azure Hills congregation. Thank you for the kids. Thank you for the grown-ups. Thank you for everybody in between. Thank you for you. Thank you for being part of our experience today and for filling this place with your spirit as we ask for him to move among us and stir our hearts. Give us spiritual eyeglasses and spiritual hearing aids. And thank you that you are going to do this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, our, our closing song that we used uh, for the previous pre presentation and the closing one before that last night, for those of you who are here, were songs that were um, done, written, and, and then presented by Buddy Hotelling. And Buddy's going to join us next weekend, and you won't want to miss the concert that will be coming at 6 o'clock in the evening next Saturday. But anyway, um, he goes to a church that, that the, the church foundation was laid in 1879. That church is old. And they decided that they want to do a facelift to that church. And so they began um, raising money for the facelift. They wanted to make it more, I don't know, contemporary. And um, they decided that they were going to replace a stained glass window, which was at the front of the church. And Buddy told me that the stained glass window at the front of the church has always been, for decades and decades, it's a picture of Jesus reaching out with yearning desire to the rich young ruler. So you remember the story and the rich young ruler that says, Jesus, you know, I'd like to sign, like to sign up with you. And you remember how Jesus said, well, you know, go ahead, sell what you have and join me. I'd love to have you. And then the guy's like wavering. Do I really want to part with my stuff? And... In the stained glass picture, Jesus is like, you know, make the choice. Make the choice. Join the team. Well, they're going to replace that. They want to put three angels up there. And Buddy was telling me that he was disappointed. Because he said, every week when I sit in worship, that's Jesus reaching out to me saying everything else put it aside, make me first. That's Jesus. He's speaking to my heart. I see him every week doing that. And he said, it just strikes me that I think the three angels would prefer to have Jesus front and center. We've made a big deal in my subculture, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, about three angels. We talk about the three angels' messages. And... Uh, I think Buddy is right when he suggests that if the three angels could vote, they would say, don't put us front and center. You know, there's stories where angels show up in the Bible, 
And uh, people, human beings, immediately kind of bow to them, and the angels say, oh, no, 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 don't bow to me. Don't worship me. Jesus alone deserves your honor and your glory, your praise, and so on. Don't, don't worship me. So I want to see if we can find something in the three angels' messages that would remind us more and more of Jesus, because we're looking for Jesus in the book of Revelation. Um, Again, in my subculture, if you were to ask a typical member of the Seventh-day Adventist church to summarize these three angels' messages that are found in Revelation 14, uh, the first one would probably be summarized as a warning about judgment that's coming. The second one would traditionally be summarized as a plea to stay out of false churches. And the third one traditionally would be summarized as an indictment of the beast, whoever that is. But I said I'm motivated to looking for Jesus in the three angels' messages. Now, if you were to ask, again, in my subculture, to just briefly summarize the whole package, they would probably come up with this one. The hour of God's judgment is come. That's kind of where we boil it down. The hour of God's judgment is come. But is that really the three angels' messages? Uh, Revelation 14, 6, let's look at it on the screen. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. So, did you notice the uh, word that was in red? It was the everlasting gospel to preach to who? Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Would that have to include Muslims? Yes. Would it have to include Hindus? Yes. Would it have to include Buddhists? Yes. So what is the message that we take to the Muslim and to the Hindu and to the Buddhist and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people? Watch out for judgment, stay out of false churches, and beware of the beast. Is that the message that we take to the world? Uh, one thing we noted off the bat was it was the everlasting gospel. That was the red letter in red, the everlasting gospel. So what is the everlasting gospel? We continue in verse 7 of Revelation 14. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So the words, the hour of his judgment has come, are contained in the message, but I am going to suggest that that's not the message. It's part, and it's included, but it's not the message. Just a part, significant, but only part. For starters, we already know this, it's the everlasting gospel. According to Daniel, the book of Daniel, the hour of God's judgment has a beginning point. So if something has a beginning point, could it be everlasting? No. So that judgment would not be the everlasting part of the message. Um, so what is the everlasting part of the message in these three angels of Revelation 14? Uh, in order to try and figure out what the everlasting part of these messages is, we're going to do something that you may remember doing in a, a grade school, uh, compound, uh, diagramming sentences, diagramming compound sentences. Uh, it was not my favorite part of, of my educational experience, but anyway, we're going to take a look. Um, so if we diagram this compound sentence, part one looks like this, fear God. So the verb is fear, the object is God, what is the subject? You are. Our English teacher would say the subject is understood. 
you are the subject. Now, the second part of this compound sentence is give glory. So once again now, um, the verb is give. The object is glory. What is the subject again? You. It's understood. It's you. Now, and also, uh, this one says, give the glory to him. You give glory to him. And I think to him would be considered a prepositional phrase. Uh, so now we go to the third part of this compound sentence in Revelation 14. And once again, we see worship him. So the verb is worship. Him is the object. And once again, what's the subject? You. Again, it's understood. So now, after the everlasting parts, where does judgment fit in? Well, it sounds like perhaps it's a prepositional phrase. Um, and my father had been asked to speak to a group of people at a, at a Seventh-day Adventist publishing house called Pacific Press. And they had asked him to come and do a week of spiritual emphasis for the staff and the team at the publishing house. Uh, and so he was coming and presenting a presentation each day for a period of, of five days during the week. And he decided he wanted to talk about the three angels' messages looking for Jesus in the three angels' messages, which is what we're doing also here today. And so he thought, I'm going to suggest that the hour of God's judgment is come is not the heart and core of the message. It is in addition to or subservient to. And so he said that he, it was a prepositional phrase. Well, after he had spoken that day, uh, a book editor approached him. And they said, Pastor Ben, and I think I understand what you're trying to get at, uh, trying to make a point here about the hour of God's judgment not being the heart of the message, something more than that and, and all, but, but don't call it a prepositional phrase. It's not a prepositional phrase. And if, if you want to look like you know what you're talking about, if you ever talk about this again, don't call it a prepositional phrase. He said, it is an adverbial clause. Well, my dad was very grateful to have been enlightened and, um, you know, having had that enlightenment done in a private manner so he didn't make him look like a fool in front of everybody. Well, it wasn't too long after that that my father had been asked to do a week of spiritual emphasis at uh, Loma Linda University. And he thought that maybe he would try showing how this three angels' messages of Revelation 14 are really all about Jesus. And so he had in his arsenal the right phrase, right? It's, not, it's an adverbial clause. So when he got to the point of trying to un unpack that, he said, and of course we know the hour of God's judgment has come is an adverbial clause. And, you know, he went on with his presentation. After the presentation... <laughs> One of the English professors came to him, and they said, I don't know where you got that adverbial clause stuff. Man, he said, I understand what you're trying to say, but if you want to get it right, he said, it is a conjunctive clause. It's not an adverbial clause. And so my dad thought, oh, whew, I'm thinking that I'm going to place a professor at the university a little higher in the pecking order than an editor at the publishing house. So I'm going to call it a conjunction. And so, believe it or not, he's given another invitation. He's asked to come and do a week of spiritual emphasis. They actually ask him to talk about the three angels and Jesus in the three angels' messages at Andrews University, the seminary, and so on. So he thinks, well, I know the right thing to say this time. And so he comes to that point, and he calls it a conjunctive clause. And after he was was done with a sermon that day one of the members of the Greek department came up to him 
biblical languages professor. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I don't know who told you that conjunctive clause thing, but he said, it is a causal clause. That's what it is. And my dad's like, oh, of course, a causal clause. How could I have missed that? So in order to be safe right now, what we're going to do is we're going to call it a causal adverbial conjunctive prepositional phrase clause. <laughs> and if you have anything to say, please don't say it to me afterwards. Speak, <laughs> speak with my father, and he's hard to talk with right now. <clears throat> the point is, the hour of God's judgment is come is subsidiary to the main message. It's not the main message. And if we preach the hour of God's judgment has come as the main message, then we've missed something. I said we're looking for Jesus in the book of Revelation. Can we find him here in the three angels' messages? The main message of these three angels is you fear God, you give glory to him, you worship him for the hour of his judgment has come. So the main part, there's a common thread that goes through all of the three angels' messages. In fact, believe it or not, this same common thread goes all the way through the book of Revelation. And I'm going to put it on the screen right now. The common thread that goes all the way through is a warning against self-worship or self-dependence and an invitation to a deeper life of faith instead of works and my own effort, a life that's based on relationship, especially as we approach the time of judgment. You know, there's an old a spiritual, it says, if we ever needed the Lord before, you know, we sure do need him now, right? And as we approach the closing events of our earth's history, there's nothing more important than us having a personal connection with the guy who's coming for his friends right? So we're looking for him, and that's the thread that goes all the way through the book of Revelation. It's the thread that goes all the way through the three angels' messages. Now, at this point, I'd like to just do a little diversion here, and, and I'd like to read three short paragraphs that were written to my denomination 130 years ago. And they're going to be brief, but I'm going to make a point from them. And so here's the first one. There are but few, even of those who claim to believe it, that understand the third angel's message, and yet this is the message for our time. Well, that's a little disheartening. Only few that understand it. Here's the second one. Not all of our ministers who are giving the third angel's message really understand what constitutes the message. Whoa. That's a little disheartening as well. And here's one more. The third angel's message must be presented as the only hope for the salvation of a perishing world. The theme of greatest importance is the third angel's message. It's embracing the messages of the first and second angels. Let's get that one right. It's sort of the appeal by this author. And so I have a question for us. Is watch out for the beast the only hope for a perishing world? No. No, what's the only hope? I guess I used the wrong word. Instead of saying what's the only hope for a perishing world, the word would be who is the only hope for a perishing world. Well, towards the end of the 19th century, there was a group of people who got very excited about the message of righteousness by faith in Christ alone. 
They got so excited about the idea that a friendship with Jesus is the heart and core of the Christian life and that as we focus on getting to know him, he takes us from there. He covers us with his robe of righteousness, but he doesn't stop with forgiving us. That would be the justification kind of a thing. He also works to transform us from the inside out. That would be sanctification, makes us holy, makes us more like himself, takes our heart of stone and writes, uh, makes it a heart of, of, of flesh and writes his law in, in our hearts. So if he's written his law in our hearts, then our behavior is the result of his work. Instead of focusing on behavior then, we focus on savior. The two words rhyme, behavior, savior, but there's a world of difference if your focus is on one or the other, right? Well, this group got very excited, turn of the 19th century, about that subject. Christ our righteousness, righteousness by faith in Christ alone. And there were people who couldn't get enough of it, and they were talking about it. They were writing articles about it. They were telling their neighbors and friends about it. They were preaching about the message of Jesus and his righteousness and a personal friendship with him. And interestingly enough, as they were doing it, and the fervor and the enthusiasm and the passion was growing for the subject of Christ and his righteousness, there was a group of old guard who got nervous. And if you were here for the presentation previous this morning, I had a group of that sort that wrote a letter to me. But there was a group of old guard who got nervous with the focus on Jesus. And they started writing letters, particularly to our publishing houses and to our um, periodicals, uh, wondering, uh, are, we, are we sort of drifting here? Uh, they wrote letters saying, we need to stick to our message. We need to not forget our distinctive doctrines. We need to, we need to, we need to. And so many letters were written of concern that uh, a response was finally published in our church periodical and I'm going to put it on the screen. Several have written inquiring if the message of justification by faith or righteousness by faith or Christ and his righteousness, all terms for the same thing. Several have written me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Now that's another way of saying you better believe it. It's another way of saying absolutely. It's another way of saying for sure you betcha, whatever way you say it, the point here is that that is the third angel's message in verity. Righteousness by faith, Christ's righteousness instead of my own. That's it. Well, how could we have been so far off base back there at the turn of the 19th century? Were we really off base? You might say you'd be a little hard on them, perhaps. Were we really off base? Well, the same writer wrote these words in 1889. There's not one in a hundred who understands for himself the Bible truth on the subject of justification by faith, which is so necessary to our present and eternal welfare. Now, I want you to do, do you remember? I think they said it this way. If A equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C, right? There's some kind of a axiom or something. I don't know what they call that. Okay, but now, based on that one right there, <clears throat> um, if it is true that justification by faith is the three angels' message in verity, we saw that a moment ago, if that's true, and if not one in a hundred understand justification by faith, which is what that just said, then not one in a hundred of us understand the three angels' messages. Because if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That is sobering. 
especially for a church that uses three angels on the logo. Not one in a hundred understand for ourselves the message of these three angels. So it's probably very important for us to understand this message. What is it that is so vital that it needs to be the message that's taken to every kindred tongue and people? What is it? Well, you might say, once again, I'm glad that the thing you just told us about happened in the 19th century, the end of the 19th century. We're enlightened. We're much farther down the line than they were then. Doesn't apply to us. You know, we're not hardcore legalists. We're not focusing on the facts and the rules. We're focusing on the Savior. Oh, glad it wasn't us. But here's a sad reality, and this is true not only in my denomination, this is true in every denomination around the world. And this is, this is the true statement. Of the people who attend church, now I'm not talking about the people who stay away even though their names are on the church records. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the people who attend. Surveys given across denomination mine included, have indicated a sad reality of the people who attend church when asked to do a survey that evaluates their personal spiritual life. Four out of five describe their personal spiritual life like this. Regular in church attendance, little or no daily time alone with Jesus. Four out of five. What's that percentage? 80% of the people who attend, on the average, of the people who attend church, approximately 80% have little or no daily time alone with Jesus. I I noted that the the gentleman who had the the prayer just preceded um, the sermon, uh, as he was leading into the prayer, He said, it's easy to pray when the chips are down. And he said, and sometimes it's even easy to pray with thankfulness when we have multitudes of blessings. Oh, it was you. Yeah, right there. Okay. But he said, how many of us are making daily prayer with God and communion with him the heart and core of our experience? And that's the question. I'm glad that you sort of phrased it that way as you led us into prayer. Because if 80% of us on the average have little or no daily time for Jesus, then guess what? Righteousness by faith is about a relationship. That's what it's about. It's not a theory. It's an experience. And I may understand the theory But if I'm not making time for Jesus daily, I'm not experiencing the reality. So it's just as possible for us today, even though we might say, well, we're not legalists, you don't have to be a legalist to neglect Jesus. You can be a relationist, if you will, and not find time for Jesus. And if I'm not finding time for Jesus, then the relationship, which is so critical. Remember Jesus said in John 17, 3, people asked him, what's eternal life all about? How do we go to heaven? He said, this is it. 
This is life eternal, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus summarized the ticket to heaven was a personal, intimate knowledge of him, a friendship with him. The word he used, K-N-O-W, it's translated elsewhere in the Bible to describe a, a, an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife which produces offspring. Um, Abraham knew Sarah, and she bore him a child, and they named him Isaac. Adam knew Eve, and she bore a son, and they named him Seth. Uh, Joseph knew, did not know Mary until after her son, being Jesus, was born. It's the same word that's used when Jesus said, eternal life's based on knowing me and knowing my father. So he was talking about an intimate, below the surface, not casual, special relationship between he and I, you and him. That's what he was talking about. And if all the time I have for him is an hour or two on the weekend when I show up at church, then that intimate relationship is missing. Even if I am not a legalist, I'm living apart from him. So the problem continues. It continues even now, all these years later. So what is the message of justification by faith? One more little one-liner up here on the screen. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. Which is another way of saying it's God's work when I come to understand my own inadequacy and my own inability and my own helplessness and flawed condition. I'm born that way and so are you. And if you haven't discovered that yet, then your eyes still need to be opened. But when I understand my own need and my own inadequacy and I cast myself helplessly on Jesus and I cling to him, remember Peter clinging to Jesus and he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, but he hung on. I like that. I hang on. I hang on in spite of my flaws. And I say, Jesus, you know, you're my only hope and I'm hanging on to you for dear life. And he says, you've got me and I've got you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I won't turn loose. Well, <clears throat> he says, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take you because you have recognized your need of me. And so that's a perfect combination. Well, how much can man do for himself? It said, it's God's laying in the dust and doing for man what he cannot do for himself. How much can man do for himself? In order for us to get a grasp on that, I just want to put John 15, 5 on the screen. Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing. How much is nothing? It's a peeled zero. You take the peeling off a of zero, and what do you have left? Nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, I tried to make this on a little equation on the blackboard there, and so why that stands for you. And notice in this equation, you're all alone. You're on the left side of the, of the equation. You're all alone. You're by yourself. So you, by yourself, produces or equals how much? Nothing. Now, uh, the, next ver the next verse I want to put on the screen is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is another one you know. And I tried to illustrate that one this way. Y, that stands for you, plus X, that's going to stand for Christ, equals, and that's supposed to be the infinity sign, a little sideways, eight, all things. Now, if we put both of the equations on the board at the same moment, uh, I want you to notice that me or you by ourselves, nothing's getting done. But on the top equation, you or me with Jesus, everything's getting done. So now, if nothing gets done without Jesus, but if everything gets done with Jesus, then who would be responsible for whatever it is that's getting done? Jesus, right? So then his part would be the all things. What would my part be? 
my part would be getting with him and continuing to get with him on a daily basis, not a weekly basis, on a daily basis. That would be my part. My part would be spending time with him. My part would be opening the door when he says, I'm standing at your heart's door to knock. And if you open the door, I'll come in and fellowship with you once a week for an hour or two. No, if you open the door, I'll come in and fellowship with you every day. If you're inclined, open the door. So my part in the Christian life, when I understand this message of righteousness by faith, justification by faith, my part is opening the door and spending time with him on a daily basis. His part is transforming me and doing the all things. That's good news. That's wonderful news. Well, if he is the one responsible for the all things, then who gets the glory? He does. He gets the glory. Uh, there's a southern gospel group called the Cathedrals, and they sing a song I love to hear them sing called All the Glory Belongs to Jesus. All the Praise Belongs to Him. What's left for us then? Getting with Him and continuing to get with Him, which is the thread that goes all the way through the three angels' message. You worship Him, you fear Him, you, you... That's the thread. See how it fits into the three angels' message? Let's look a little deeper into those three parts of the compound sentence. Fear God. That was the first part. Fear God. What does that mean? Obviously, it doesn't mean be frightened. Now, this is fear meaning reverence. Revere. Hold him in awe. We have a hymn, Before Jehovah's Awful Throne. I don't, that doesn't mean his horrible, terrible throne. It means before him, your mouth drops open. You know, first your mouth drops open like, and then your knees collapse as you go to the ground in worship. Fear him then has to do with awe. And I would suggest that it is impossible to hold somebody in awe if you don't know him. You'd have to know them before you'd hold them in awe. When my father and mother retired from the Azure Hills Church, they moved to Arkansas, of all places. And they lived in a little town. Let's see if I wrote my notes here. Yeah, they lived in a little town not far from a place called Bentonville. Now, I don't know if you know what's so significant about Bentonville, but Bentonville was the home of a guy named Sam Walton. Ever heard of Walt Sam Walton? Yeah, Walmart. Right, Sam Walton. And when my parents moved near Bentonville, they heard a story, kind of a legend in those parts, that they told me. I thought it was interesting. So Sam Walton got in his old beater pickup and he drove it wearing overalls and a John Deere baseball cap, or cap, John Deere cap. He drove it to the Peterbilt Agency near Bentonville. And as he got out of his beater pickup, a salesman approached him and said, how can I help you today, sir? And he said, well, I'd like to look at some semis. And the guy looked at him, 
And he said, sir, I'm sorry. He said, we don't really cater to tire kickers. He said, these trucks cost about $200,000 a piece, and I can see that you're a tire kicker, so uh, have a good day. And he walked off on Sam Walton. And Sam Walton got back into his beater pickup, and he drove down to the Kenworth store. And he said, I'd like to look at your semis. And the guy said, what can I show you? And Sam Walton bought a hundred of them. <laughs> and when the owner of the Peterbilt franchise learned that he had come to them first, he fired that man. And when he asked the man, why did you do that? His answer, which is lame, was, I didn't know who he was. But it illustrates a point. If you don't know him, you're not going to hold him in awe. So, number one then, in this three angels' messages, fear God requires knowing him. So right off the bat, we see up front in the three angels' messages an invitation to friendship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because how are you going to ever hold him in awe if you don't know him? As you come to know him, you're humble, you're awed by who he is and who you are, and you find being at his feet is a pretty good place to be, clinging like Peter. The second part of the compound sentence was give glory to him. And if I have not yet discovered that I can't save myself, if I'm still trying hard to work on keeping my life intact and, and sitting on the keg of dynamite and keeping it from exploding and working hard to show God I'm serious because I've given up this, this, and this, and I'm trying harder and harder to do this, this, and that. If that's the way my life is running, then guess who I'm depending? I'm depending upon myself, and I'm focusing on external goodness. And if you were with us for the first service this morning, the Laodicean church in Revelation 3 is noted for focusing on externals. Well, you might say, but I'm not really focusing on externals. Yes, yes, but if I have little or no daily time with Jesus which is what 80% on the average of us are in that dilemma. If I have little or no daily time with Jesus, then I am depending on myself instead of him. And if I'm trying to stay out of trouble, even if I'm not saying I got to do this in order for God to like me, if I'm trying to be an upstanding citizen of the community and a good moral person and I have no daily time for Jesus, then I am depending on myself. And if I should happen to be saved while depending on myself, who would get the credit? I would. It is far too easy to take credit for what God alone deserves the glory for. Uh, I couldn't tell you how, how, how easy it is. Um, I was, many years ago, before I was a pastor, I worked as a, um, a teacher, uh, a secondary education. I, I taught Bible classes at a Seventh-day Adventist high school, a couple of them, um, two or three of them, actually. And um, 
I was teaching at a school called Campion Academy, Seventh-day Adventist High School, just uh, north of Denver, Colorado. And uh, I had a break between some classes where I had like an open slot. And I thought, you know, I need to do some banking business, and this is a perfect opportunity. Uh, our home was on campus, so I thought, I'll just run home. I'll do the banking thing and come back and get to my next period class, and it'll all be good. Well, as I uh, headed back to the house, I noticed sitting in our driveway was a three-quarter ton Chevy van that had been sitting there for months unused. And I thought, you know, I should take the van. It hasn't been ridden, driven for so long. It'd probably be good to run, you know, the gas through the engine and to get the cobwebs out and, and uh, probably be a good idea. So I thought, I'm just going to take the van. So I jump into this three-quarter ton maxi van, Chevy van, and I turn on the ignition. I should have noticed off the bat that this was going to be problematic because when I turned the ignition key, it went like this. And then it started. And I thought, oh, good. Good thing I'm taking it because it needs, the battery needs some, uh, some, some charge. This is a good thing. So I drive this to the bank. Now, the bank that I went to had what they call a drive-through window. Have you ever thought about how ludicrous it is to put a sign out in front of the bank that says drive-through window? What would, what would they do if you drove through the window? You know? But anyway, said drive-through window. And at that particular bank, they had like a a driveway with curbs on both sides that kind of meandered through some plantings and some lawn and some little shrubs as it came around to the window. So like once you got into the lane, there's no getting out because it's shrubbery on both sides and curbs on the edge. So I'm in the lane and there's a lot of traffic, almost as much traffic as you have around here. And as I get in the lane, I'm idling forward, getting, waiting my turn, working my way through. I get all the way to where the teller is. I pull up. I put it in park. She pushes a little button. The tray comes out. And she says to me, how can I help you, sir? And as she said that, my van ran out of gas. <laughs> and I said to her, uh, I just ran out of gas. She said, sir, you came to the wrong window. <laughs> she said, what are you going to do? You're obstructing all the other people behind. Well, the lane kept winding to get out. And I thought, have mercy. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got out of this big van. I put it in neutral. I worked hard at trying to get the thing to move. And I finally got it down the lane and just a little ways to where there was a wide spot before the, the driveway exited. And I got it into there and put it in park. And I'm thinking, now what am I going to do? And then I noticed a block away was a Shell gas station sign. So I raced down to the Shell gas station. This is back in the day when you could get like a gallon of gas for 25 or 30 cents or something like that, you know? Can, has there ever been a day like that, you know? Anyway, I race down there, and I say to the guy, I'm in a big hurry. I have to get back to an appointment in just a few minutes. My van is out of gas. The battery is, like, dead. I'm not sure even if I put gas in it, if it's going to start. But, you know, can you give me a gallon of gas? And he said, absolutely. So he's filling the gas up to the tank there. And he says, um, as he, I grab the gas, I give him whatever, the dollar bill or whatever. And I turn, and I start to run off. And as I run off, he says, good luck. I said, thanks, I'm going to need it. And I race back to my van, and I put the gas into my van, and then I get around to the front, and I sit into the driver's seat, and just before I reach for the ignition key, a thought occurred to me. Why not pray first? You ever heard people say, we tried this, we tried that, we tried the other thing. There was nothing left to do but pray. 
Like, what would happen if we prayed first? So I thought, I'm going to pray first. So I said, Lord, uh, this is not a salvation issue. If, if, if this thing doesn't start, I'm not going to walk away from you or from church or, you know, any of that. Uh, but I'd sure like to have it start right off the bat. Because, you know, by the way, I'm trying to get back to teach a Bible class. <laughs> and I said, amen. And I turned the key. I kid you not. It started without any, it, it just went boom, just like that. Like igniting a match into gasoline, just boom. And it kept running. I thought, whoa. So I drive over to that station. I give the guy his can back. I say, I'll come fill up after I'm done with my next appointment, but I'm already going to be late if I don't leave right now. And he said, no problem, no problem. And I said, thank you so much. And he said to me, so I thought you said it wasn't going to start. And I said, well, guess I just got lucky. And I drove off. Yeah, always right. I went, I drove off to teach Bible. I had just had an opportunity to give credit where credit was due. I didn't have to preach a sermon. I didn't have to say to him, you know what, my gas thing just started like that and all that, and I believe that if you'd like to, I could give you a, a series of Bible studies and doctrines and so on and so on. No, I didn't have to do that. All I needed to say was something like this to him. I don't know what you think about God, but I said a prayer, and it started, I'm giving him the credit for that one. That's all I needed to say. But no, no, I just got lucky. It's so easy to take credit for something that he's responsible for. Who gets the glory? Romans 4.20 says, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith, and he gave who the glory? He gave the glory to God. When you are faithful, you give him the glory. He gets the glory. Again, it's just so easy to give the glory to the wrong person. One more story. So eventually I quit being a Bible teacher and I became a pastor. And as a pastor, uh, we have twice a year, we have professional growth meetings. They usually take two to three days. Um, and we usually go to um, a centrally located place. Often it's a summer camp area. And we stay there for two or three days of professional growth. So I'm going to these meetings. I'm, I'm getting into the drill and so on of being part of that. And um, there comes a point in these meetings that, for me, those first years, that I dreaded. And the reason I dreaded them was because as we came to the final meeting, before they closed it off, after the three days together, our boss, we called him the conference president, our boss would give a Bible publicly to the pastor who had baptized the most people since the last time we were together. It was a very expensive Bible with 24-karat gold leaf embossed. It had the name written on the guy who had been the pastor, and, and it was this, um, like, a goat skin softened lamb kind of leather so it's just very tactile to touch and anyway they'd call the pastor forward i sit on the back row 
with a guy named David George. David George was pastor to the Native Americans in our conference. And David George had long hair and a braid, and he wore blue jeans and cowboy boots and had a silver belt buckle with turquoise in it. And he and I would sit in the back row, and he would say things to me like when this came, when they would have the, the recognition thing, he would whisper to me, I hate this part of it. And I'd say to him, your kindred spirit, David, I hate it too. I said to him, David, why do you hate it? He said, because compared to these people they're recognizing, I feel like I'm a flop and a failure as a pastor. And it just, I go home discouraged. These discourage me. I said, me too, David. So we would sit in the back row and commiserate together. And uh, so the years went. And so the recognition came. And then one day, I'm sitting in the back row with David for the last meeting because I know what's coming. And the conference president gets up and he says, um, I'd like to call David George to the front to receive the Bible. <laughs> I thought, you turkey, you know. <laughs> you traitor. David George looked at me like, he stood up, bewildered. He walked down through the center aisle to the front, like. The conference president said, some of you may be wondering why we're giving the Bible to David George this time around. He said, we decided to do something a little different. We decided to give the Bible to the person who had the most baptisms per capita based on the population base they have to work with. And David George ends up qualifying for it this time around. Well, every time they would give the Bible to a pastor prior to this, as they'd give the Bible, the president would say, tell us a little bit about how you did it. And so then the pastor would share his sort of secret for success. Well, I believe in foyer evangelism, or I believe in driving to visitation and giving people bulletins and inviting them to come next week. And so I have these different techniques and different tactics that I use. And, and they would each give their little thing. And then we would go home, David and I would go home, and we would try to do what we heard them do. But it didn't seem to pan out for us like it panned out for them. And so anyway, the president says, so we're giving it to David. And then he goes to hand the Bible to David, and he says, David, he said, how'd you do it? And I watched David swallow slowly several times. And he didn't say anything. And then finally he said, with a broken voice, he said, actually, this little ceremony that you're doing here, this is the biggest cause of depression and discouragement that I ever have when I come to pastor's meetings. And he said, I go home so discouraged that I feel like I should give up the ministry. And he said, the last session we had, I actually told the Lord, I think I really need to quit. I said to him, I don't know 
I've tried all the techniques they share. It doesn't seem to work for me. I don't know what to do. He's swallowing hard. He's speaking with his voice quivering, and he says, so after the last session, I got down on my knees in tears, and I said, Jesus, I'm on the verge of quitting because I only know one thing to do, and that's just to tell people what you mean to me. That's all I know. None of this other stuff seems to make a difference. So I said, Jesus, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to quit trying to do what other people do. I'm just going to tell people what a friend I found in you, and I'm just going to have to leave that with you. Then David took the Bible, and he said, so, he said, you just gave this book to the wrong guy. You have the wrong name engraved. He said, the Lord Jesus deserves this Bible. Because there is no glory for the work of man in the gospel. All the glory belongs to Jesus. All the praise belongs to him. What happens to man's glory? To the dust. And that's why they didn't like Jesus. They blew trumpets prior to loud public prayers. They hadn't been willing to admit that the Shekinah glory had departed. One woman was wise enough, and she named her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. When God's glory is absent, man's glory rises to the top. When God's glory rises to the top, man's glory goes to the dust. You remember John the Baptist saying, I must decrease, and he must Increase And people say, oh, but what about a little glory? You know, we have to have our self-esteem. What about a little glory? And most achievers and self-help people don't like this message. But 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And Galatians 6, 14 says, God forbid that I should glory, except in this. There's one thing I could glory in, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, the third part of this compound sentence was worship him. And if God is not worshiped, man is the only one left to worship. I might not say I'm worshiping myself, but if my worship isn't directed heavenward, then myself is the only thing that's left. Self-dependence is all that's left. And if I do not know the experience of a daily relationship with Jesus, if he and I are not on regular communion and speaking terms, if my knees aren't on the floor before my open Bible as I commune with him morning by morning and day by day, then regardless of what I tell people, I'm not worshiping him. Even if I sing songs of praise on the weekend, I'm not worshiping him. So the common thread through these three angels' messages is actually an invitation to fellowship with Jesus, an invitation to learn to know him and trust him and depend upon him. That is what the three angels' messages are really all about. And the question, I guess, for us is, are we ready to make Jesus the center of a prophecy seminar? Jesus the center. We've been <clears throat> told that he is all in all. Do we believe it? 
Does our schedule indicate that we believe it? You know, you have to be at the table before you can pass the bread. But let's join the Apostle John at the table day by day. You know what? Four out of five on the average say, I attend church but have little time. Let's reverse that. Let's reverse that. Let's say, how about four out of five are saying Jesus gets first priority, not just on the weekend. He gets it. Let's forget reversing it. Let's go for 100%. Shall we? 100%. And so my final scripture is Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Listen to Buddy Hotelling sing Jeremiah 9. I've spent time among the wise, but I've tried looking through their eyes they know wisdom's not the prize it's understanding you and i've spent time among the strong figured out that i was wrong what helps them to carry on comes from knowing you knowing you i love it's joy and peace with those you love resolve that through your strength and by the unction of your Holy Spirit we want to open our hearts door to you more and more regularly we want to fellowship with you on a daily basis we don't want to let the cares of life crowd you out 
So thank you that you keep knocking. Thank you that you haven't given up. Thank you that we can be your friends and that we can be friends forever. It's my prayer in your name. Amen.